Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for listening in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, here today, today here, we're going to be once again taking another chill pill after a couple of lengthy and or intense episodes of the pod. You all know what I'm referring to. So with that in mind, I wanted to do something fun And what is more fun than simply listening to a Paul McCartney album with an uneducated yellow belt such as myself? Yes, this is going to be another episode of Listen With Sam, another one of our innumerable side series where, you guessed it, we're going to kick back with another album from the Paul McCartney oeuvre and we're going to listen to it together. Slash, you're going to listen to me talk over the top of it, mostly for legal reasons. This is a great chance for both me and you to dip back into an album that we've already reviewed here on the show and see what, if any, opinions have changed. I was actually going back through some of the earlier episodes of this side series and I realised that when I actually started these, apparently each episode began with a little intro as to what the album was about and its production, like some real cliff notes kind of shtick, and I I haven't done it the past two or three. Uh, I kind of just forgot that I did it. I don't think they were entirely necessary. Do you? Like, yeah, some of my early episodes, I've mentioned this before, are a little bit scattershot in their quality, and I would like to redo them in the future with the modern Paul or Nothing ethos, but this side series isn't that. And instead of focusing on facts and dates, I wanted this to be more about opinions and feelings. Mine, to be precise. Um, I'm not sure if any of you were missing that segment or anything, but I just noticed it and I thought it was funny how it naturally got dropped off. But yeah, folks, we're going to be doing Wings at the Speed of Sound today, released in 1976. This was the album that Wings put together during their little forced break during the Wings Over the World tour when they couldn't get into America for legal reasons. And so with their time, they made this album. Can't wait to dig in. But before we can do any of that, we have to get through the housekeeping. So what do we have in terms of news today, folks? Well, actually, I wanted to do something a little bit different here. I actually have my own announcement. Yes, shock horror. And for those of you who download the episodes as soon as they come out, you may have noticed that there was a bit of a delay between this one and the last. And that is because I've been a little bit busy with a side project but do not panic this is nothing to do with replacing Paul or nothing or anything like that no it is a supplementary side series that I'm working on that's going to be exclusively shown on the YouTube page yes Paul or nothing does have a YouTube page folks and it's something that I kind of want to kick off with its own content to kind of draw you over there and make it worth checking out and I've always wanted to do content that is a little quicker to produce and is a little shorter and a little more free form based on a set structure. Like a lot of my friends do podcasts like that and they're able to churn out episodes at an alarming rate in direct contrast to the very slow production of Paul or Nothing episodes, as I'm sure you're aware. 
So in that vein, I have decided to create Macca in your attic. What is Macca in your attic? Well, the premise is, is that I and a guest, most likely from the podcast past, will be going through their attic, as it were, and they'll be showing me their junk. Keep your mind out of the gutter there, folks. For the junk I am on about is more motorcars and handlebars and bicycles for two. Each of my guests are going to show me five of their top items in their Macca, possibly slash Beatles collections. This can be vinyl, CDs, memorabilia, clothing, books, magazines, any ephemera you can think of. If it was sold, then it has either Paul's face or another Beatles face on it, and it has an interesting story attached to it, or it's innately interesting or rare or valuable, it's going to be on this show. And it's been really fun doing it. In the time that it's taken me to make this one episode of the show, I've actually also recorded seven episodes of Macca in Your Attic with seven fantastic guests and 35 even more fantastic items. Like I say in my intros, the guest is actually required to be a little more prepared and interesting than me, and rather like Paul or nothing in that a lot of this show is about me learning about Paul for the very first time and listening to Paul for the very first time. A lot of these items on Macca in your attic are items that I, or maybe even you, have never heard of. There's some really rare and obscure shit here, and fortunately, the people who own them all know what they are in depth and are more than willing to tell their intriguing stories. These episodes are going to be about 45 minutes long-ish, maybe an hour, and you will be able to find them every week on the Paul or Nothing YouTube page. They will be uploaded every Sunday on the dot. The first episode has indeed been released, my episode with Ethan Alexanian, where he shows me his incredible collection of Macca memorabilia. Please do go check it out. (laughs) That episode was really fun to make, and Ethan really helped kick off that show with a bang. Like I say, I've got seven episodes banked, so there is a lot coming out in the future. Please go and check out the Paul or Nothing YouTube page. Links will be in this episode, of course. However, if you can't wait for my episodes with, say, Chip Madinger or Tom Hunyadi, then maybe you can go and check out the Patreon page. For the Patreon page now, if you're one of our $5 tier members, you do get instant access to every episode of Macket in Your Attic as soon as it is available. So if you want to check out the next six episodes of Macket in Your Attic several weeks, if not months early, do go and check out that Patreon page. More details later as I finish the housekeeping, I am sure. But yeah, that's enough of my plugs. Let's go back to some real news. We have finally had the release of the music video for Slide In. Bow now 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 now. The song from McCartney 3, I'm sure you all know it. And very strangely, folks, it's entirely different than what the trailer suggested. Yeah, if you go back in your minds and remember the trailer for the music video that we had for Sliding, which is a very weird thing in Paul McCartney's online uh, catalogue, shall we say. And yes, if I remember correctly, it did include uh, some footage of surfing, but it also included like skiing and snowboarding and lots of mountain shots and stuff like that. But if you go and check out the video on Paul McCartney's YouTube page that is available today, it's also on his Vivo account, 
you will see that the entire music video is just surfing. Yep, the trailer is a complete lie. Clearly, in between the huge gap from that trailer being released to this music video being released now, like several months, maybe even half a year, a lot had changed in that production. They they obviously decided to go in a different direction. And if anything, now it reminds me entirely of the Blue Sway uh, with the Richard Niles Orchestra music video we had a few years ago, except whilst that one was shot entirely underwater, this one is surfing from above the water. It is weird that McCartney, in his kind of obscure music videos, has this obsession with the sea and surfing. It's a side of him that he's never talked about in interviews, but yeah, it's a nice little through line, I guess. Anyway, I will indeed be reviewing this music video in the McCartney 3 summary episode that I am working on. That should be out in a couple of weeks as well. I'd actually been waiting to put out that episode purely because of this music video's lack of existence. So now that it's out, I can actually start putting that together. Also, the big news this week was The Beatles Get Back, the Peter Jackson documentary film, is now no longer a film. It's now a three-part six-hour miniseries that's going to be premiering on Disney+. Plus. It's going to be released on three consecutive days from November 25th to November 27th, which is actually a very similar release structure to the Anthology Project in America. And my oh my have people kicked off about this one. Yes, folks, we are in the age of streaming, right? Streaming is now king. Cinema has taken a massive backseat, especially because of COVID. And whilst certain cinemas have reopened, um, you know, it really hasn't been the bounce back that I think the industry wanted. And we are going to see cinemas struggle over the next few months. And it doesn't surprise me that Disney, a company that has seen massive success with their recent streaming services, including streaming-only shows like The Mandalorian and all of the Marvel superhero projects, that they would choose to do the same with their Beatles content. Why not? Fuck you, pay me. That's the attitude we're getting here. And yeah, it would be nice if this was in a, a wider cinematic release to make it a bit more of a special memory. But if I'm going to be selfish for a second here, folks, I've already got Disney+, Plus, so it really... It really isn't any skin off my nose, if I'm completely honest. And yeah, whilst this could be another one of those situations where a couple of years ago I may have been a bit more revolutionary and outraged about this kind of thing, um, it's just par. It's just it's just par for the course now, isn't it? Everything's divided. Of course, you could argue maybe this would be more acceptable if it was on one of the major streaming services, like, say, Netflix or Amazon, something like that. But I kind of like the fact that it's Disney, because whilst Netflix does have real fuck-you money, it's still nothing compared to what the mouse has. And it's great that they've been able to go to Peter Jackson. Yeah, it's nice that you're going to do one film for us, but you're also the same director that originally had a two-script treatment for the Lord of the Rings trilogy and then expanded that into three films and then expanded The Hobbit into three films as well, as well as having lengthy extended cuts for all of the films in the Middle-Earth series. They know he's he's someone who can really stretch this material out and 
I can see Disney Plus having record numbers from November 25th to 27th. This is going to be absolutely crazy, folks. In terms of me, it's also really exciting just for the fact that I know that I'm going to be making so much content in those three days and it's going to be a challenge to get it all out but I really am going to try and have first reaction podcasts live day by day as it comes out maybe with a summary episode at the end we'll see all in all though along with the biography slash lyric book that's coming out November's going to be a busy and costly month for a lot of us I reckon it was also boom and finally folks to round out the new section I would be remiss in my duties if I did not mention that it was also Macca's 79th birthday. Happy birthday, Paul. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. Congratulations. I wish you all the good health in the world. Thank you for everything you do. Here's to many more years ahead. Here's to many more albums ahead as well. Let's see what 79-year-old Paul can put out there, eh? Anyway, I can already tell that this episode is going to be far too long for a listen with Sam, especially with the emails we have to read out ahead. Yes, folks, get in touch with the show. Email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always want to hear your Paul McCartney stories. Our first email today comes from Richard Campbell, one of our more recent contributors, and it is in direct response to our last episode, the second slash third interview with Jeffrey Giuliano. And whilst I drool over the prospect of anyone writing in about specific episodes, you should know that any discussion of Jeffrey is only going to feed his ego more. So be warned, you know? Anyway, what did Richard have to say? Dear Sam, can you imagine that narcissistic motor mouth, and by his own admission then, at his least finessed, in that 40 minutes with George? I can't imagine it. I'd have a permanent look of alarm on my face, and the tapping moment would have had me calling the cops. Nutter on the bus. What a cunt. Thanks for putting up with the human bin bag on air so I can finally hear his voice. Here's the greatest hits that I heard from your latest conversation. Linda was great, but she was a whore. Haha, <laughs> it was the 60s. Olivia was dressed like a rich wife of a rock star and is a secretary who got lucky and didn't like me and I hate her. Way to Krishna, dude. Way to fucking Krishna. I'm writing a book about Yoko called Black Widow because she's a fucking monster. Harry Hurry, fresh back from India, dude. I'm a reformed beetle fart, or whatever he said. I I believe the phrase was beetard or beetletard. Then he he continues, I don't care about this stuff anymore, he says, but I'm republishing all of my books and working on a hatchet job of Yoko and putting out a fucking album of me singing George songs and it will piss everyone off, especially Olivia. Yeah, I don't care about this stuff anymore. Right. And finally, people don't appreciate me. Genius is pain, Jeff. Gotta say, man, I dread this fucker coming into the pub, let alone on my phone. A boil on the bum of the history of the Beatles. Sam, it's the least I've heard you speak on an episode also. I think if you were to put all of your comments together, it might amount to about five minutes. Jesus, you were right about giving him enough rope. He's like if Albert Goldman and Lennon Remembers fucked in an alleyway behind cross keys and had a demon child. Anyway, I won't say it wasn't entertaining, mate, but fuck. Also, signed up to your Patreon today. Love to give you more per month, but times are tight. When I'm making more money, fingers crossed, I will. Cheers, Rick. Then he followed up with, Hi Sam, watching my first Macca in the attic and enjoying it immensely. 
How fun it'd be to chat with you two. I have those same yellow submarine figures too, but I let the children play with them when they were young and sadly, my Johnny's missing a hand. Got Paul and John, plus Jeremy, and a love figurine. The kids loved Yellow Submarine, and they still listen to the fabs. My daughter has the most interesting choices on the never-ending playlist. Anna Go To Him, of all things, is one of her favourites. Sorry I went off so virulently about Jeffrey Giuliano, but the man triggered me. Anyway, totally worth being a Patreon member. Thanks, and I'll be listening in the future. Rick Campbell. Wow, thank you so much for that correspondence there, Rick. I'm so glad an episode of mine was able to rile up such passions in one of my listeners, even if it was entirely for the wrong reasons and with the wrong guests. And whilst I wouldn't call the quotes you wrote down highlights, so much as they are a gag reel, I must say, when I read them all out loud, as I did there, it it sounded even more ridiculous. Also... My gosh, I really do need to pick myself up some yellow submarine figurines, as it seems everyone has them but me. Finally, thank you for saying it's worth being a Patreon member. I really do appreciate such kind validation like that, especially with something that, you know, I'm asking money for. You know, let's not beat about the bush here. Though it should be noted that no one is going to believe you, Rick, when you said it was worth being a Patreon member, and they're only going to assume that I wrote it in. Still... Thanks all the same. I'm really glad you enjoyed the content. Please write in in the future. Can't wait to hear from you. We've also got another email to read out this week. This one is from a first timer, but again, it's about Mr. Jeffrey Giuliano. They signed it Kim, even though the name in the email is different, but we're going to go with Kim. And they say, Hi Sam, just started to feel guilty about listening to my favourite podcasts without showing my support, i.e. forking over the dollars. And so I just set up a Patreon monthly payment for you and a handful of other podcasts I listen to regularly. I wanted to give you some feedback on the Jeffrey Giuliano episode. It was interesting because I'd always heard negative things about him and avoided purchasing any of his books, but I'd never heard him speak before. I have to say, he gives off a weird and not in a good way vibe, and I tend to believe that he comes off badly in his press, honestly. I also googled him and came up with a YouTube video with an ad for date Thai women and another video of him being the ugly American on a supermarket line in where else? Thailand. This is not to say you shouldn't have interviewed him. I think letting us hear from people directly and letting us form our own opinions has value in itself. Thank you for doing the podcast, Kim. Again, Kim, thank you so much for that email there. I really do appreciate you sending that in. And just like the last email, no one is going to believe you that you've just (laughs) set up the Patreon account there. But again, a lot of you seem to be responding to the content I'm putting on there. And I'm glad you're all enjoying that. But yeah, back to your email and back to Jeffrey. Um, Thank you for saying that I shouldn't have interviewed him. That is something that I had a lot of anxiety over. As you know, uh, to say that he comes off bad in his press might be a bit of an understatement. You know, Jeffrey's an actor, and yeah, a lot of the time he seems unable to portray himself in any way that's not kind of uh, confrontational and a little self-satisfied and self-aggrandizing, I guess would be the best way to put it. He can be grating for some, I know. But hey, folks, if you're annoyed, you know, just listening to the podcast, try conducting one, then you might get annoyed, you know. 
that's real irritation there when you're trying to keep this thing moving forward, you know? But yeah, Kim, thank you so much for that email there. Don't be shy on the Patreon page. I always like to see your comments on there. Hopefully hear from you in the future. Anyway, let's crack on. Follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. You can follow us there for daily updates with the show and loads of polls we're doing at the moment. If you want even more Paul or Nothing content, this time in the written form, go and check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on all of the socials, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on all of the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. They're just other unique ways to keep up with the show. Of course, now on our YouTube page, there is Macca in your attic. There is unique content now on the YouTube page that isn't just highlights of the video clips that you can only get on our Patreon page. So yeah, go and check out Macca in your attic every Sunday on the Paul or Nothing YouTube channel. Just type in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney podcast or Macca in your attic. You can't miss it. I also just wanted to point out that I had a rather nice interaction on the Facebook page and I wanted to highlight it because there are a million ways to get in contact with me here at Paul or Nothing and listener Carolyn Winkleman commented on the Facebook post promoting what else but the Jeffrey Giuliano episode, particularly the question of the validity of his various spurious sources. Like everyone else, Carolyn felt compelled to give her two cents on this topic and I wanted to read out her comments. She said, Sam, I think you did a good job in your introduction of framing what was about to happen in the episode. In my recent social engineering class that I attended, I asked my professor what to do if you were interested in using leaked documents as a source in a paper. I think leaked sources and controversial sources could be treated in a similar manner to what he told me. My professor said to include notes about the source and be upfront about what you find credible or not credible and why. As best you can, give the history of the source and trace how it was alleged to come into being so the audience can make up their own minds about how much weight to give it. I would like to see more analysts and journalists and interviewers being more courageous like you in tackling the controversial sources and giving their audience more credit for being able to do their own analysis. I think you did a very good job. I can see why this interview would be uncomfortable for you and the listeners, but I think you were fair to everyone. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for that, Caroline. Or Caroline, maybe. Thank you so much for that. That really is touching. Yeah, I did give that Jeffrey Julian episode quite the introduction and quite the uh, pre-waffle. That wasn't even in the housekeeping segment. I just rambled on about my own quibbles with the following episode. But yeah, Jeffrey's sources, not really something he goes into in the book in all that much detail. Because I think if he did start pulling at that thread... I think he's more than well aware of the fact that the piece of clothing he's stitching together might come undone. Because if he went in with a completely objective, just journalistic report the facts with no flair or drama or hype or controversy, then he probably wouldn't have that much to help him stand out outside of the fact that he was writing a lot of these biographies first. For example, if you don't write that, oh, Jojo Lane is a very spurious source and she can't really be trusted and she was a cokehead and how she had a very spurious past with relationships and stuff like that, 
then yeah, of course, the story of Jimmy McCulloch pointing pointing a gun at Paul McCartney's head whilst he slept is not going to sound as salacious and as revelatory because we would have already made up our minds about Jojo beforehand. But if you don't put that, which he didn't, then you just get to fill in the gaps with your own kind of speculation, I guess. And I think that grey area is where he wants to specifically reside in. He can have the best of both worlds, really, you know. Again, thank you for that correspondence there, Carolyn, because... Yeah, that was that was really interesting. And you also posted some other stuff that I read as well. Thank you for all of that. Hopefully see you around in the future as well. Now, closing out, future things for you. What you what can you do? Well, if you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us a review, preferably a positive one. I'm not going to make it because people will complain. But hey, the nicer the review, the nicer the comment, the more thumbs up we get, the more likes we get, the more we're boosted up in the algorithms and more people know about Paul or nothing. Now, if you want to help out the show directly, maybe you want to help see the show grow, maybe you want to help see us get new equipment, new product to review, or maybe you just want to help keep the lights running and admin costs, that kind of thing, then consider checking out our Patreon page. Yes, Patreon is a platform by which you, the public, can help independent content creators such as myself by throwing a few dollars at my face down the internet every month. Now, there are loads of benefits for being a poor or nothing patron. First of all, at the lower tiers, you get two-day early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing, the podcast, and one week early access to all episodes of Macca in Your Attic, the YouTube series. Then as you move up in the tiers, you get instant access to things like scripts that are used for the show, unedited episodes with raw audio, access to the video feed, all of the podcasts are now recorded on Zoom, so that's not available on YouTube at all, so you can watch all episodes as soon as they are uploaded, and like the Macket in Your Attic thing, any podcasts that are uh, recorded immediately are available to those tiers, to those upper tiers as well. And finally, at the very top tier, you also get to come on Macca in your attic yourself. And one of the patrons below is indeed at that tier and will indeed be appearing on Macca in your attic. It's shallow as fuck, I know, folks. But hey, this patron has put their money where their mouth is. But that is not the most important thing I need to announce. Of course, as you just heard in the email correspondence there, we do have two new patrons to welcome to the Poor or Nothing family. And they are, as you may have guessed, both Richard Campbell and Kim. So welcome to the family, everyone. Thank you so much for thinking that Poor or Nothing is worth a few dollars a month. Uh, it's pretty still crazy to think that anyone would want to donate to this show financially in any form. But the Patreon's really picking up steam at the moment and... That inspires me to create more and more content for it, give you more bang for your buck. And a lot of that is where Macca in Your Attic came from. More than, you know, being something for YouTube, it was originally just conceived as something for the Patreon page. And with that, along with the video feed and early access, I really am proud of all the stuff you can get. So if you are curious about joining our family, please go check it out. If you can't afford it, don't worry about it, because I have this wonderful family already. A family including Richard Campbell, Kim, Richard Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Carper, Moti Reba, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, 
Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, and future guest on Macca in Your Attic, Matt Phillips. Right, folks, now that we have the housekeeping out of the way, it is time to transport ourselves back to 1976. Wings are still riding on a wave of success and popularity. Half the world has gone mad for the Wings Over the World Tour, and the other half are as hyped as all hell for the second half. And in their enforced summer holiday, to sate us all until Wings Over America comes out, we have this little album. So get your copies ready, folks. I'm just preparing my vinyl one now. We're going to get ready for Wings at the Speed of Sound. And yeah, this is going to be a fun little album to delve into, really, because you get to go into this with the most positive mindset ever. Like I say, Wings are doing really well at the moment. And for many, this is the start of the decline. This is where the cracks begin to form in the marble and... It's always albums like this that I'm most excited to do here on Listen With Sam, purely because they are the most fun to revisit. They are the albums where I most enjoy questioning my opinions on them. Like, do I dislike this album? Do I like this song more than that one? And this is one of those albums where it is engaging purely because of how uh, all over the place it is. And... Yeah, let, let's let's just dive right in now, folks. And with those opening doorbell chimes, we are immediately thrown into the nostalgic, rose-tinted world of Let Em In. It's a hell of an album opener, folks, and it really belies the kind of mediocre reception this album has overall. Maybe this song sets the bar too high, leading to a Red Rose Speedway type situation. But the fact of the matter is that despite this album's less than stellar reputation, Let Em In is a solid banger that makes no particular effort to do anything other than be pure McCartney. Paul is confident in his success by this point in 76, and instead of the last two albums where he's open with crowd-pleasing big old rockers, we now have this smaller, atmospheric piano tune that i got to say is certainly refreshing. And for an album that has silly love songs, it totally makes sense that this kind of song is his opening statement. The somewhat sombre tone of this song and rather opaque lyrics that go into very little detail mean that you can do an awful lot of projection onto a song like this. In my own overthinking manner, in my own head, I've always asked why the door isn't already open and why the family aren't automatically allowed in. Are these metaphorical questions that McCartney wants me to be asking? Are we supposed to question who or what family means? Is he asking us to be more inclusive in general? I'm not sure. Like I said, this song invites this kind of thinking, and that's one of the many things I love about it. It's also just straight up a very interesting composition in terms of McCartney. Like, if you typically want some contrast in a song, then you normally have like a happy song with sad lyrics or a sad song with happy lyrics. But here, what Paul has done is have his cake and eat it. The melody and arrangement are both kind of ambiguous, and, and so are the lyrics, which creates this rather indescribable mood. Like here, we've got this really upbeat, uplifting brass section that's really enlivening, but there have also been a lot of downer segments in this song as well. I wouldn't go so far as to call it happy or sad either way, 
But what it does do, as with all of the best McCartney songs, is create a visceral emotional reaction in the listener. I feel like you'd be really hard-pressed to listen to this song and not feel something. I must admit here, folks, a lot of my warmth to this track is purely nostalgic. I have no idea where I actually would have heard this song in my youth, but what it reminds me most of uh, is the sitcom Only Fools and Horses here in the UK. Um, whilst Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey actually did appear in that show, it's the fact that this song is the true embodiment of that close-knit familial unit you know, the one that McCartney is describing here. He's really laying out an archetypal British family of the 50s, 60s, and 70s here. And, you know, like me, I'm sure there are many people out there who feel like Paul is literally describing members of their own family. Like, going back to the words like you in the Beatles and the campfire nature of Band on the Run, Paul's got this inexplicable way to make people feel included and involved in the music. Um, going back to Only Falls and Horses, though, I feel like that's just a Mandela effect thing where I, I'm just confusing it as Uncle Albert. But this, this song has the exact same kind of downbeat, chipper, yet chipper British sound that, you know, is that show. So maybe I'm not too far off. I've always also liked how this song uses the syntax of M, it's let M in with an apostrophe rather than let them in. This is gonna sound very over the top, but it keeps the proceedings nice and informal and helps keep the reality of the song, I guess, in a minor way. It's also more inclusive than him or her as well. Something I'm gonna be bringing up a lot in this episode is the collection of fantastic demos that are available on the Wings at the Speed of Sound archive collection release and Lenamin has one of the best ones. This early version, likely recorded at McCartney's home, is far more jaunty. It's much more of a piano in the pub sing-along type of track that, thanks to some hilariously unserious backing vocals from Denny and Linda, make it a much more directly enjoyable experience than this album version, even if it is at the expense of the nuance. Also, just got to give a shout out to those classic American Revolution uh, flutes and George Washington-esque drums there. Um, it's, it's a very joyous moment in the song, actually, and you have to have the restraint of a saint not to go along with all those adorable do-do-do-do-do's. But yeah, we come to the end of the song there as we move straight on to the note you never wrote. And again, getting fixated on the title a little too much here, folks, but shouldn't this song be called The Note That You Never Wrote rather than The Note You Never Wrote? Now... In all seriousness, folks, even as I'm listening to the start of this right now, I must admit I am pleasantly surprised how much I genuinely enjoy this synthy, warbly, modulated little opening. Like, I'm not sure how long this good fade is going to last, but I'm certainly feeling it's going to uh, be a song that might be one of the ones that I reconsider this time around on Listen With Sam. This song's just so unique in the Wings canon. It's it's just so strange. And that's one of its greatest strengths, you know. You know, it just doesn't sound like a stereotypical Denny Lane type track. Obviously this is Denny Lane on lead vocal, Paul had written it. Um maybe it's just the production style. 
Um, but I also kind of feel like here that this could possibly be a case where Denny has a little more to say in the studio here. Maybe he's taking more more of a lead direction here, maybe doing his own Mad Professor McCartney stuff. You know, this does sound like it's in the same kind of uh, milieu as what he and Paul were working on on the Holidays album with all that synth stuff. And... Yeah, okay, it could just also be an excuse for Paul to experiment because it's just one of Denny's tracks. But, you know, the shift to this song really isn't without precedent because we saw Paul slash Denny comfortably take noticeable steps away from the good old-fashioned blues and rock formula with the Paul and Linda penned Spirits of Ancient Egypt on the last album. But this track, for better for or worse is taking what they started there and pushing the boundaries of what Denny can be in part of this band. This is especially interesting when you consider that Paul probably already knew that Denny's own other song, the far more conventional Time to Hide, was both a big old rocker and would be commercial enough to be added to the Wings Over America set list. So you really can see this song as an, an opportunity to do something really fun and something actually more importantly conscious and planned rather than just throwing together some random filler for the sake of it we just ah that little keyboard solo there going straight into that blistering guitar that literally comes out of nowhere it reminds me very much of the 10 second rock spasm we get on Girlfriend on the next album London Town despite how much I'm not hating this song folks it's still strange that they sequenced two kind of slower songs together and they probably should have allowed Denny to come out with Time to Hide, you know, come out swinging with a more exciting song. Again, I'm not calling this bad and I am liking this song as this section goes on more and more, but first impressions are everything. And as we're going to see later on, this is an album made of poor first impressions of the extraneous members of Wings. Though, in all fairness, this is easily the best song Paul wrote for someone else to sing on this album. Though, that really isn't saying much. Now, just a little insight into this recording, folks. Uh, I tend to do a lot of riffing when I do these Listen With Sam episodes. I mean, shock horror, I bet you couldn't tell that at all. And I mostly just write bullet points of things that I want to kind of bring up. But this is actually the second time I had to record this segment. Why? Well, because in the original take, I forgot that Paul wrote this track and I spent a whole minute praising Denny for finally getting a song on the album, which, yeah, very stupid of me. Uh, it wasn't until the final edit where, till I caught it. But yeah, the note you never wrote. What a, what a cracking little song <laughs> in its own weird little way. Anyway, coming on to the next song now, and we have... She's My Baby, a song that is way earlier on the album than I remember, actually, and a song that is painfully close to being a minor McCartney classic. But one thing you're about to hear right here um, prevents it from achieving that potential. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, folks. This song contains one of the most controversially trite and silly rhymes in the entire McCartney songbook, and I still find it amusing how many people consistently bring it up, either in comment sections, articles, or even in conversation. Of course, that line is, like gravy, down to the last drop, I keep mopping her up, yeah, yeah. And whilst I'm already having flashbacks to the first time I riffed on this naff sentence a few years ago, it really does need to be revisited. 
because what woman, let alone the most famous vegetarian in history, would ever want to be compared to gravy? Um, personally, we love a bit of gravy here at Paul and All Nothing, folks, but it's not the most romantic of foodstuffs in the world. And yeah, I know that beef and brown gravy aren't the only gravies in existence and it could be an onion or mushroom gravy, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the idea of mopping up someone just doesn't work. Is this another case where this is some great cosmic joke that we're just simply not privy to? I mean, Paul is a top tier songwriter and this just seemingly slipped through his net. The line is so clunky and poorly phrased and in your face stupid that it literally takes you out of the song like some bad special effect or terrible acting in a movie. It breaks the suspension of disbelief and brings you out the album. Which is terrible really because there's a lot to enjoy about this track. Um, also, along with Cook at the House, this makes two references on this album that we have to like Linda and food. Is this subliminal coding to get us to buy her future cookbook or something? Who knows? The real irony of this song though is that it appears on the same album as Silly Love Songs, a song that, as we will shortly hear, is a track where McCartney decries his detractors either for not getting his work or over-exaggerating how bad it is, and yet here, only two or three songs prior, we literally have one of the most egregious examples of Paul's that'll do placeholder style lyrics to date. Like, I know Paul always thinks back to that line, the movement you need is on your shoulder and how John liked it and how the lack of meaning means everything. And, you know, the magic of it originally being a throwaway line, but this gravy line is not that. Okay, I do realize we are nearly done with this song. We've got about 30 seconds left. And I do, and I do feel obliged to point out again, everything else around this song boasts that true top tier clean cut McCartney production. The whole thing, admittedly try and throw away as it is, still is an enjoyable novelty. I love Paul's inclusion of that particular electric piano or keyboard. It's effortlessly cute and saccharine. And it is a new sound that we haven't heard from the band before. I also love that subtle bit of electric guitar in the mix. It's got that low rumble of a growl, which really does it for me as well. And like many other songs on this album, it also has a stellar demo version on the archive re-release. But I am running out of time and we are moving on to the next track, which is Beware My Love, a song that I know is high up in every McCartney fan's rankings to the degree that when we all call it the great Lost Wings rocker, we only really mean in the sense of the wider public because yeah, the fan base is all over this one. And before we can begin my full appraisal of this track, I just want to highlight this little prologue section because it's wholly underrated in the whole tapestry of this thing. You know, I'm going to spend a, a, you know, a lot of time talking about Paul's killer vocal on that runaway piano and all of that, but no one ever, ever really talks about this little acoustic segment. The almost folky aspect to it here and the stellar backing vocals create this really deceptive teaser that reveals nothing about the insane rocker yet to come. It really reminds me actually of the Love is Strange opening from Wildlife, whereby the lack of McCartney in the opening vocal makes you kind of subconsciously miss him and allows his ensuing vocal, when it does come in, to hit all the harder. But it does that in terms of the entire production, not just the vocals. And this is just so mysterious and it really builds up the majesty and the scope of this song. It feels like world building, you know, it's really laying the stage for an immense drama to come. And, th you know, this part of the song actually does sound like a warning. And then right now, 
You know, we haven't heeded the warning and suddenly things have taken a stark change in direction. It's just so good from this point onwards, isn't it? Oh my God. For a song that was, I think at one time, ranked in my top five Paul McCartney songs ever, I realised that in the lead up to this episode, I really haven't listened to it all that much uh, since I reviewed it, at least compared to, say, like, Monkberry Moon Delight or Goodnight Tonight. And you know what? I'm kind of glad I didn't, because already, as we're listening to this right now, it's reminding me of those true friendships you have where you don't need to keep in constant contact with them and you just slip back into the groove, into the zone, like we are now. It's like we were never apart. Like, fuck me, folks. Is this ever one of the greatest Paul McCartney songs ever? Not just rockers, not just lost tracks, not just a song, not just in terms of songs of this album. Just straight up, this is one of the best songs he's ever written. Like, there are a lot of platitudes surrounding this album, but all of the hype concerning this track in particular is totally earned by Paul and the band. I mean, Paul's voice, as I alluded to earlier, it's one of his strongest vocals. And on such a subdued album such as this, on such a kind of stoner, laid-back affair as this, to have him come back with the little Richard Howell, the call-me-back-again kind of scream, oh, it's <laughs> it just gives the album the kick up the arse it needs. I'm excited again. I'm engaged. You know, this is just so... It's indescribably good. Oh, and as you heard there, we've got Jimmy's guitar coming in now. It's starting to get a little bit heavier. And now it's, oh, it's just building and building. It's getting out of control. The bass is there now as well. It's just thundering and driving you forward. It's relentless. We've got backing vocals coming in now as well. They're in top form as well. Linda really gives it her all here. And... You know what? I've spent a lot of time talking about the music and how awesome of a song this is, but very little time, including this episode arguably, is spent on the meaning of this song and what it means and what the motivations behind it. Like, for an album with so many songs dedicated to Linda, I do find it rather intriguing that he would counterpoint that with a track where he warns against a naive young lover getting in over their head. That's quite... Uh, unique for Paul. Something else you also hear a lot about this song is how um, there was the version with John Bonham on drums. Yes, John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, and his version is on the archive collection along with all the demos. And I can only imagine how Joe English must have felt at that point. Like, Bonham's one of the greatest of all time. Jeff Britton's only just been unceremoniously kicked out of the band. And now this guy's taken over your song. What a situation. Um, I'm only bringing it up, though, because I genuinely don't understand, especially listening to this right now, why people think the bottom take is oh so much better. I mean, I do have a, a bit of a tin, talentless ear for this sort of thing, but you think that the drumming part would be noticeably better, but I really don't feel like it is. And the song's not produced to the same quality either. And I don't think the band even give as good of a performance as they do this time around. This is the best version of Beware My Love. 
and then we return to the opening coda for just one B here. I've always loved this part of the song. It's a little trip back up to the top of the roller coaster that we need so that we can do one last hurrah back down the last slope. <laughs> it, it's just so thrilling. I mean, folks, it really doesn't get much better than this, does it? It's crazy that Paul has never revisited this song ever, and I can only assume it's down to the strain a song like this would put on an aging Paul's voice. Not that that's nearly a sufficient enough excuse, though, is it? Especially when you consider how many times we've gotten Let Me Roll It and Live and Let Die and Helter Skelter. You know, a song like this could fill that gap in the set list perfectly. This is equally, right now, this equally is run away and as powerful and emotional and raw and makes you want to jump up and down. This is that song. Paul, why have you left it so long to give it to us live? Who knows? And rounding off side one with that spiralling down the rabbit hole sound, we're going to go straight into another lead vocal from the fresh-faced Jimmy McCulloch. This is Wino Junko. And I will admit that whilst this song I feel has been unfairly judged, I still do understand why people don't like it as much as Medicine Jar. I just think the reasoning's a little suspect, you know? The main criticism hurled at this song is that it is a retread of Medicine Jar from the previous album. And whilst I can't really argue with that, well, actually I can. No, apart from the fact that these two songs sound entirely different musically, uh, something I'll touch on in a moment, but are you really gonna tell me on an album with silly love songs that Paul doesn't tend to retread the same themes all the time? Now, is it to say that since Jimmy's only going to get one song per album that he should make an effort to write about something different with his single slot? Well, who are you to put that upon Jimmy? The man was literally crying for help with songs like this, very much in the same way Lennon was writing a song like Help. And he was also in the relative infancy of his songwriting career. This is a co-written song, so maybe Jimmy is still writing about what he knows. That's that, that's how you write stuff. That's how you are comfortable in writing. But Paul thought these songs... If you don't think that the topic of drugs or addiction are not necessarily Wings or McCartney-ish, well, I'd argue that drugs certainly are. And Paul certainly thought these songs were Wings enough to be on a Wings album, which says a lot about what Paul was willing the wings sound to be at that point. But yeah, my point is, after all this time, but the point is, after all this time where I could have been discussing the song itself, I've just been defending its honour, which is a shame, because I, I really feel like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here musically that does not nearly get the credit it deserves. Just as a closing thought here though, what do you think it would have been like if Jimmy had stayed in Wings and stayed with us? Maybe he would have managed to secure two or even three songs on a Wings album. It's an interesting proposition indeed, especially since we've got Denny coming into his own here as well. And maybe we would have had a far more interesting competition with Denny versus Jimmy within the band, or both of them cumulatively against Paul. I know hypotheticals are one of the lowest forms of conversation, but still. Anyway, 
onto the song itself. Listen to that solo. This is pure Jimmy McCullough. This is why we want him in the band. And yeah, not to sound too simplistic or like I'm reviewing Three Imagined or something like that, but this is a track for the longest time has just had a groove that I cannot resist. Like, yeah, you could have rewritten the lyrics and kept the same beat and kept this awesome arrangement, but for me, the somewhat dazed, dreamlike, doped-out quality of the song is matched perfectly with the lyrics. You do feel like you are the wino junko. The synths chosen have, have a delay and a resonance to them. The vocals echo and distort erratically. You get these weird shifts and breakdowns, which, which almost feel like freakouts. There's also that weird computerized vocoder speech. It replicates intoxication. I think the production's really quite stellar here. And yeah, it, need, it needs to be highlighted a lot more than it ever has been. Of course, also, before we move on, folks, I did also want to highlight the fact that friend of the show and previous guest, Paul Sally, is going to soon be releasing his much-anticipated book on Jimmy McCulloch, titled Little Wing. I have indeed been sent a press copy of the book ahead of its release, the first time that's ever happened, which was incredibly cool in all fairness, and I'm sure we're going to have to have Paul Sally back on the show to talk about it. Oh, this little breakdown as well, shifting to the acoustic. It's just so groovy. Like, it's fun to see that Paul isn't the only one who's allowed to be hopelessly indulgent on these albums. Like, Jimmy really gets to let rip here and just have fun being the main guitarist in Wings as well. Uh, it's, it's just an incredible end to side one. And, yeah, I'm still glad to see that um, you know, obviously Jimmy's going to be gone by the time we get to the next album, but whilst he's with the band, his presence is truly felt. And yeah, a lot of you out there aren't particular fans of this song, and I'm not going to sit here and say that Wano Junko is as good as or better than Medicine Jar, but it's still a solid song on the album, and it, it is not ranked amongst the tracks that drag this album down. At the very minimum, this is a mediocre track, but I consider it to be, at the very least, quite good. Take me down, Jimmy. And now at the end of side one, we have to go and flip over our discs, but now is a time of reflection. How do we feel about side one so far? Are we already disappointed in Wings at the Speed of Sound? Is this already the worst thing since sliced bread? Or do we have to wait until side two, until things start taking a turn for the worse? Well, as we're going to see as we start side two now, folks, it can only be time for one of the greatest songs in the Wings canon. This is Silly Love Songs. And I just want to draw your attention now here to those iconically mysterious pumping and wheezing sounds that begin this song. Almost every time I listen to it, I forget that this bit exists. It's almost like this syncopated pneumatic pounding of metal and steam. It's almost like the factory-like manner in which Paul is supposedly writing his songs. It's a literal factory song. Of course, it's Paul, so it's going to be a turn-of-the-century steam-based factory. But yeah, there was no way I was going to get halfway through my notes there before the song kicked in, because why would Macca waste any time in getting to a beat like this? Because, you know, for all the sarcastic gripe I give to the fact that this bass line is all that people talk about whenever they discuss this song, at the end of the day, it is legitimately one of the greatest gifts that Paul has ever given to us. Though, I would say, 
For a bassline so iconic, it really isn't one that you hum along to or can recreate from memory very easily, is it? The only uh, complaint I probably ever could muster for this song, that's probably the only complaint I could ever muster for this song. Again, I feel like I'm saying this more and more, but what can you say about silly love songs that hasn't been said? Not only is it dragging the rest of the album kicking and screaming into semi-classic status, but it is also a critical track in giving Wings that true staying power with a number one in 1976. You would have thought that the downfall of Wings would have begun with an album so poorly received, apparently, as Speed of Sound, but the album was number one, and McCartney's single songwriting in that year was so strong that he delayed that decline by one, maybe two years. It's still pretty mad though how massive this song was. Like it was the number one for a week, fell down to number two, and then retook the top spot for a further three weeks. It was the top selling single for all of 1976 in America. That's no mean feat. You know, Paul's supposedly an old man by contemporary rock standards at this point is not only dominating, but dominating with a song that is both a send-up and staunch defence of his most mocked writing tropes. And fundamentally, I think one of the reasons that people resonated with this song was because of that saccharine over-the-top sentiment. You know, people agreed with it. For a song about throwaway lyrics, it's heartwarming to know that people did and do listen to the actual lyrics of the track, and they wholeheartedly agree that, you know, <laughs> the, love isn't silly at all. <laughs> that the world isn't full of uh, cynical John Lennon types who hate Muzak. It's just so validating for Paul. It must have been... Oh, the brass here as well is just oh, peak wings again here. You know, you can just imagine the bright faces on everyone in the crowd. And now we come to one of my personal favourite parts of the song, aka the vocal harmonies. We get a little just short snippet here, a taster, if you will. You know, it's still got a bit of the groove behind it. But even this short section is so effortless, effortlessly masterful that my words really do fail to describe it. Like, not since something like Long-Haired Lady on Ram have we experienced such majesty with the Paul and Linda vocal dynamic here. It's just magical. Usually, though, during these Listen With Sam episodes, there's some segment where I do a flashback to where I was in my life when I first reviewed the album. As banal as that is. But as I was writing my notes for Speed of Sound, I kept drawing a blank. So I did the math, I traced my steps, figured out all the dates and stuff. And as it, and as it turns out, that time in my life, uh, when I, I reviewed this album, I was working at a call centre, trying to sell home security systems to the elderly and vulnerable. It was literally the worst job I've ever had. I never got a single sale because I couldn't pressure sale anyone. And it's honestly no wonder why I decided to block it out. As joyous as it was to cut back to the main brass section of the song there, um, we come back to the main vocal harmony section here. I'm sure this is a highlight for many of you out there as well. And what I enjoy about this is that Rather than turning into the song into one of those classic McCartney two-parters, like a Frankenstein joint, it does instead feel like one flowing, um, intentional, thought-out, thorough, well-crafted 
movement in a song, you know. It's just a more intimate shift in the narrative. And, oh my God, like, we don't deserve this segment, do we? <laughs> you know, all of your hearts must be swelling right now. I know, I know mine is. The blend is just seamless there. And, oh, you know, we come, we come back now. Big, big smiles on everyone's face again. You know, we've gone down, we get to go back up again. I love just how indulgent this whole song is, though. This is Paul at the height of his mad Professor McCartney production powers. He has no restrictions at all. Um, you know, folks, during these Listen With Sam episodes, it is just too tempting to, like, sit back and enjoy the track. And this is one that I would just be listening to if, if I could, because it is just the best. And now that... We can hear the crackling of what I can only assume is bacon, hardly veggie friendly. Again, we have the Linda McCartney led vocal on this album in the form of Cook of the House. Apparently, though, that is no mere random sound effect you're hearing, folks, for apparently it is actually sizzling in the key of E flat. Apparently, it's the only part of the song recorded in stereo, as the rest of it afterwards is in mono to enhance this kind of retro 50s feel. Yes, they're doing a kind of Elvis song for Linda. How appropriate, I guess. Ugh, this was my first exposure to Linda on a lead vocal, and that coloured my entire perception of her for years. The same can be said for a lot of you out there, I'm sure. And it really is an unfortunate situation, because already I don't think many people would argue that this is the point in which the momentum is more or less broken on this album. Like, it's such a moment, a real left turn. And, you know, I don't want to, like, ascribe the entire downfall of the trajectory of Wings on any single song, let alone a Linda one, especially one that I kind of like myself, especially one that she didn't write. But I cannot think of such a single moment in the discography since Mary Had a Little Lamb that has received such universal derision, you know. <laughs> like, aside from people like myself who count things they like ironically as things that they actually like literally no one likes cook of the house and so whilst there were certainly elements earlier on this album that hinted at you know the making the ground uneven underfoot a few cracks were showing it is here where the first noticeable stumble for wings comes into play again i kind of love this song and i certainly unabashedly love the lundy linda and i unabashedly love the lovely Linda, as corny as it is, though, the idea of... As corny as it is, though, the idea of Linda doing a song about her real-life position as cook of the house is pretty funny. Though, I want to reinforce here that none of the ire that this song receives should be pointed at Linda herself. Paul should have written something better for his wife and he should have known better than to give her some borderline Ringo-esque type song. Like, why hasn't Linda been given something interesting like The Oriental Knifeish? Or, you know, just allow her to, to do a fun cover of Mr. Sandman or something? Anything other than this. Next up, and we have one of my very favourite songs on Wings Over America. However, this is not Wings Over America, so of course this is the album version of Time to Hide. And it's funny, I've only just heard it there, but that was actually a fade in there. The song doesn't actually start properly in a normal sense, which is something I cannot recall right now happening anywhere else in the Wings canon. 
Anyway, better late than never, right? I mean, this isn't like mid-period George Harrison coming into his own during the Revolver period or anything. Um, but, you know, for one, Lane has actually been doing this for a lot longer in his career. But regardless, it's still incredibly satisfying to finally have a Denny Lane composition worth fucking writing home about. This is badass. If anything, this song does just as much work as either of the singles or Beware My Love in terms of bringing up the average quality of this album. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that this is more than likely the greatest single Denny Lane composition in the entirety of Wings, and most importantly of all, it's a song that fulfills the original brief of having Denny in the band in the first place. He's finally adding some proper rock and blues to the formula here. Also, this song begins a tradition that would extend onto the next album, aka one good Denny song, one bad Denny song. A tradition that Back to the Egg sorely needed to help balance out again and again and again. This is actually the song that I've probably listened to the most in the research for this episode. God, it's so good. Because of this chorus. Oh my god, that is a killer chorus. I mean, Denny really constructed something special here. It's a catchy hook that literally rivals the other McCartney hooks on this album. It's a memorable phrase, it's built up with perfect tension and release. The Macca Brass production is utterly thrilling. And it's delivered by a fantastic Denny vocal. Oh! And then, oh, fuck me, this middle-eighth bridge section is absolutely brilliant. It's that perfect boiler pot kind of songwriting that Denny excels at. You know, this is standard rhythm and blues, but it's so piercing. Those keys there. And Linda's vocals there. I love how he's brought her up here. It's so good. Like, this is rock and blues, yeah, but there's also an element of that indefinable stoner chilled-out groove and vibe, that kind of chug-a-lug in the background that I love so much about Speed of Sound. This leads us into the instrumental section as well. First of all, I love that there's finally a, a, a Denny Lane harmonica solo in here. I'm really enamoured with Denny's inclusion of harmonica in the early Wings live performances. So to have another element of his blues roots here be represented is always fun. Obviously now we're going into the guitar solo, at, which I can remember worrying wasn't coming when I first went back to this song, but thankfully it is there. And it's dirty and as janky as any of your favourite Denny Lane solos. chorus again. It's got that kind of gospel infused sound. Classic again. We're doing the low, the low key, uh, low ebb rerun of the first verse, building it back up again, ready to take us right to the chorus again. Like this is this is what I like about Danny Lane songs. It's very standard rock and blues, but you know, and you know where it's going. But he just has a, a certain knack for just making it a lot more palatable and fun than an, an other artist otherwise would have. It's so interesting as well, folks, that Denny's the best second fiddle on this album. It's not like Venus and Mars, where like Jimmy comes in swinging. Denny like picks up the slack here, and as I mentioned earlier. The idea of the uh, Denny-Jimmy duel across a continued wings would have been so interesting. Oh. Oh. 
Benny, play us out. Following on from not one but two songs without Paul on a lead vocal, we have a third song without Paul on a lead vocal. Beware all procrastinators, this is Must Do Something About It. And i got to say, this opening is such a cruel tease, because it hints at something much more intriguing, more of those uh, no-you-never-wrote soundscapes, but no, as you can hear, we're going into the most forgettable track ever. Yeah, I can honestly say I've never ever listened to this song outside of the context of listening to the whole album in one run, but I've actually... I'm not proud to admit, admit this, folk. I've skipped this song on many occasions. I cannot stress enough how fresh of an experience this is for me because not only do I listen to it, I actively make no effort to even remember it in my off time. It's not my own fault though because the song presents no reason to make me remember it and I'm not going to pick up the slack. I mean, the fact that this is a song sung by Joe English and the third in the series of non-McCartney vocals is easily more of an interesting piece of trivia than anything the song has to offer as a piece of music. Uh, more than that though, I think the main reason why I and so many people are immediately turned off by this song, and this is the point I will make about another song shortly, is just how little like a proper wing song this sounds. It's hard to describe properly with my pathetically limited knowledge of music, but it gave me the feeling of a low-rate, subpar, low-rent, bad-finger type cover band, you know, where they're doing that that type of McCartney composition where you can immediately imagine a better version of the song that McCartney would have done as a demo in the studio, you know, for the session. <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah, once again on the archive edition of this album, we get just that um, McCartney's demo for this song, and it answers definitively whether Joe English or Paul was the superior choice for this song, and surprise, surprise, Paul is way better. Of course, you can hear Paul's influence and penmanship on this song all over, but as soon as you put the wrong voice on it, the dissonance and the uncanny valley effect are just too much to ignore. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if this titanic failure of a song is why Paul wasn't in a rush to push Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly having lead vocals on their first outings in the band if they wanted them. It is strange though, for a band like Wings, who managed to find voices for Linda successfully, for Denny successfully, and for Jimmy successfully, that, you know, they, they couldn't extend that to Joe. Like, I can't emphasize enough how little this sounds like Wings and how much it has taken me out of the album again. It's like that gravy line from earlier, but for an entire song, so the effect is far more grave. Again, rather like Cook of the House, I feel like the rushed production time of this album is all over this, and I can't tell whether Paul wrote this with Joe in mind, and even if he did, I wish he would have took time to write something a little bit better for him. Like, there are so many cold-cut tracks from this era that Paul could have expanded and given to Joe instead, and uh, does he just want, not want to give Joe anything too good, or was he self-conscious about the unused tracks? I don't know. However, folks, just before we go, I will say this quick instrumental segment at the end here is easily the highlight of the song, and it's almost like a little McCartney link, you know, on his albums with that little inflection, and suddenly the whole thing feels effortlessly wings again. Oh. And now we move on to a song that I've always enjoyed, 
Of course, this, this is San Ferry Anne, and hot damn, do I ever love this song. Uh, I know some of you will think I'm being sarcastic here, but I'm really not. This is really the killer lost track from this album, now that Beware My Love has lost its kind of obscure status. I mean, boy oh boy, did this album ever need the shot of adrenaline that this song is. I mean, boy was I flagging around this point. Uh, I was kind of ready to check out. And this is Paul going, wake up, folks. Of course, a lot of the freshness and enlivenment may be down to the fact that we haven't heard Paul for three songs here. But, you know, we felt that tension uh, at, you know, at the start of songs like Beware My Love or Love Is Strange, where McCartney's vocal was absent. I mentioned this earlier. Well, he's been absent for three songs now, and now it's just such an exciting thrill when we hear him again here. Um, it's not this song's fault that it's semi-forgotten. It's just at the point in the, in the album where everyone has began to turn off or their minds have started to wander. By the way, folks, this dirty brass and electric guitar segment here, we, we heard it earlier. Not sure if I mentioned this the first time around, but I think one of the reasons I enjoyed this song so much is because it reminds me of another artist I've podcasted about. Yes, this random bit of McCartney album filler is also the one song from his entire oeuvre that most immediately reminds me of the great Tom Waits. Uh, those wheezing New York-style brass sounds and the staccato distorted guitar notes, very Rabot-esque. They feel like they're just ripped right out of the Waits' Franks trilogy in the early 80s. Uh, I guess, like McCartney's junk and Waits' soldiers' things, McCartney did it first. Something I was going to shout out in this song uh, is this closing brass here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, it's nice that... Howie Casey basically gets to duel with Paul across the whole track, but he also gets to do the outro, and like Blackbird, it's a highlight for that part of the band as well. Here we go, though. This is the final track, and as you'll hear shortly, it is called Warm and Beautiful. Ever since our original episode, I can remember bringing this song up several times as to how disappointed I felt, and how I don't understand why so many other people like it as much as they do. I mean, in terms of being an album closer to a disappointingly mediocre Paul McCartney album, it more than lives up to the hype, and I can confidently say that I rank it amongst the worst of his album tracks. This is a hill that I'm totally willing to die upon, everyone. Uh, <laughs> though, that's where the song does actually get kind of interesting for me, because the majority of controversial Macca tracks are either loved or hated by the majority of the fan base, but this is one that is still pretty much split down the middle in terms of the fans. And so I'm at least appealing to half of you right now, the right half. But yeah, why does Macca choose to end this with the most unenthused, subdued, low-key, boring track in his discography? Like, it really sealed Speed of Sound's fate as a minor album. Because his closes are so important, and this is so drab. It reminds me of a proto-beta version of those sappy songs he'd put out in the 80s, like Once Upon a Long Ago or Only Love Remains, which are just these lame duck attempts at doing a softer Maybe I'm Amazed, which just never delivers the kind of excitement or thrust needed to carry the uh, emotional payload Paul wants. Um, rather interestingly, oh sorry folks, that fucking guitar solo, it's the wettest thing ever, I hate it so much. Um, I found something quite interesting though, we all know how Silly Love Songs is probably a protest song and he's very self-aware, but have you ever considered that Warm and Beautiful might be doing something similar? Here's a section from PaulMcCartneyProject.com. 
Rolling Stone's Stephen Holden considers the song overly didactic, stating that it serves up with apparent sincerity the stalest pop ballad cliches ever to emerge from the English Music Hall. Holden suggests that McCartney may be using the song to make an ironic point about cliches, such as these cliches will outlast pop that critics consider art, or that he can transcend cliché by being the biggest cliché. But notes that, alternatively, that it may just be one of the worst songs Paul McCartney has ever written. Heart down, that is an interesting hypothesis. But the fact that the song is so clearly about Linda and the fact that Paul played it at a memorial service, you know, Costello played it in memoriam to Linda too, and it even appears later on Working Classical, that leads me to conclude that it might just have to be one of the worst songs ever written because it's too sincere for that particular reading to make any sense. Like, could Paul juggle this whole intentional cliche uh, subversion whilst also doing something truly loving for the lovely Linda? Wow, it does feel weird for me to end this episode shooting down someone else's wild theory. But, yeah, folks, that is Wings at the Speed of Sound. We have now completed Wings' album from 1976. Wow. How do we feel? You know, is it is it the beginning of the end? Are you still holding out hope for the next album? Is this just going to be a dip in Wings' discography? Is this a new low? Is this nowhere near as bad as everyone is making out? Have I got any of this wrong? If you've got any opinions on this album at all, folks, please let me know via the email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to get some dialogue going around this album in particular. Sorry that this episode has taken a little bit longer to come out than usual, but as you will be seeing in the coming weeks, I've been recording oh so many episodes of Macca in Your Attic, so Paul or Nothing still is moving at full speed. Lots of stuff is still going on here. Next episode is probably going to be... The next two episodes are going to be the McCartney 3 summary episode, where I kind of finish everything that I never got to do with the other McCartney 3 episodes. Yeah, I've got to do my homework, folks. And I will also be doing another Paul McCartney covers episode with the wonderful Under the Covers podcast. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. We've been listening to Wings at the Speed of Sound. I'm sure Denny Lane has already started playing this out by now, but keep listening to Paul. Peace and love, peace and love. Let's go, Denny.